Today we are continuing in the uh, letter of the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of the in the Galatian region. It's called Galatians. If you uh, want to turn in the New Testament, we have just started this last week. We're going to be going through Galatians up until Advent season, and then we'll switch over. We'll do Advent season, and then come back into Galatians in January. So we'll get as far as we get. And uh, today, we, again, we're going to stay in chapter 1 of Galatians, where the Apostle Paul is giving a lot of autobiographical uh, material about his own personal journey. But we're going to look at that a little bit more closely, because like most things in the Bible, uh, things are more deep than sometimes we give it credit for, and there's more there than we might realize. I see our lives just kind of personally, and as part of my history background, part of you know, my, uh, what I do stand up here and share the stories found in the, in the Bible, I see our lives similar in, in that our lives are stories. And when we get to the end of our life, we'll see what kind of story that life was. Was it a story that is a tragedy? Was it a story that was a comedy? Was it a story that was drama? What was that story? And if I could uh, have Christians, you know, people who are believers in Christ, uh, go through one of the things that I have uh, done several times as a pastor to give them life perspective. I would have Christians be involved in the process of a funeral, of going into the, a family that you usually don't know very well, and, and hearing the stories, because a lot of times you have to hear the stories from the family in order to prepare for the funeral. And I think if believers could go through this about five or six times so you could kind of get a range of what this is like, it would change how you live your life. Because basically what you hear is that in this life of maybe uh, 70 years, 80 years, sometimes short, maybe only in the, in the 20s, you hear people kind of sum up that person's life and what that life was all about. And sometimes it's very sweet, it's very, uh, it's very uplifting, other times, it can be rough. Uh, one time, I, 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 not just one time, but one time in particular, I remember I was, I was officiating a funeral again for a person I didn't know very well. When I was in Oregon, we, our church was across the street from an old folks home, an Eltern home. And so we would often get the call because we were right across the street, especially if the family wasn't local and the parents weren't involved in a church, we would get the call. And so I would often do these interviews with people I didn't know at all. I was just there kind of as a service to them, officiating this funeral. And man, one time it was rough. There was a, the family was together, and it was clear they were not very happy to be together. A couple sons and a couple daughters, they were mostly in their, probably the children were in their 40s, maybe 50s. And I remember it sticks out because one of the sons we were talking about, I was trying to be all pastoral, you know, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, and I'm sure, blah, 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 blah. We want to do the best to honor your dad. And this one said, I don't even know why we're here. Because none of us are sorry he's dead. And so why are we here pretending? And it just blurted this thing out. So, of course, this caused the daughter to cry. The, the, you know, and she's like, how can you say such a horrible thing? And they started going at it. And I'm just there like all of a sudden I became the, the pastor that's trying to help them with the funeral to the pastor who's trying to do family counseling. And uh, it was quite a change, but it was interesting to see that this person's life was being summed up by the people who knew him the best and who had been most affected by him as, why are we even here? 
And I thought, wow, what a terrible way for your legacy, your life legacy to end. Why are we even here? The other, you know, opposite extreme is, uh, you know, when someone who's a believer, someone that, that has lived a life that is worthy of, of Christ and has, you know, given their life in a loving manner to the people they love, the community around them, it's a very different feel. You know, there's sadness, but there's also, you know, a joy. And also the thing that often gets asked of me, you know, when, when the person is clearly or, or it's ambiguous at best, whether or not they're going to, you know, be in the presence of heaven, those are the ones the family will always ask me. So is dad in heaven? Like this funeral that I did, you know, the, afterwards, his, you know, his name was Jack. Is Jack in heaven? Not the Jack that we knew here. This is back in Oregon. And it's hard, for, it's hard to give that answer, you know, because you pretty much know that according to all the evidence laid out, probably not. And so you have this kind of uh, way of answering it. Well, we, we serve a just and merciful God, and he'll always do what's right. And you just kind of leave it at that, which is kind of your way of saying probably not. But people who are in Christ, when, they go to the fu- when you go to the funeral and you do the funeral, very rarely do I get asked that question because people know. They don't have to ask me. They don't have to look to me and try and assure them of something that probably isn't really there. They know. And so they celebrate that life. I tell you what, you do this enough times and you think about how you want your life to be remembered. Because not many of us think down the road this way. But at the end of the day, on that day when your life is being celebrated or remembered, your life is essentially going to be a testimony. And what is that testimony going to be of? Is it going to be of selfishness? Is it going to be of trying to chase a career? Is it going to be of titles? Or is it going to be of the relationships you had with your family, with the people you cared about, and most importantly, your relationship with Christ? So as we continue in Galatians, again, I said the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to this region in Galatia, which is... Uh, modern-day Turkey is kind of the mid-south part of Turkey, and that's, that's what was Galatia. And in this, he gives a lot of autobiographical insights. He starts out, and so we're going to pick up at verse 11. We talked about some stuff uh, last week, and we're going to pick it up today where he begins uh, talking about, you know, who he is and how he went on his journey. So he starts out by saying, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So we talked about this last week, how this was really important to the Apostle Paul because he wanted to live his life as close to the model of Jesus Christ as possible. You know, Jesus comes and he doesn't really have a house. He doesn't have a place he lives. In fact, he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He runs around the area around the Sea of Galilee for most of it, preaching and sharing the coming kingdom of God. Paul does the same thing. He doesn't really settle any one place. He travels around, takes the kingdom, uh, preaches the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus Christ, you know, suffers. Paul is willing to embrace the suffering. In fact, he wants to suffer. He wants his life to carry on, to have that same place of willingness to suffer is Jesus Christ. You know, the, we, we know that the, Jesus is the word of God made flesh coming into our darkness in order to bring hope and light. In the same way, the apostle Paul goes into the place that he would consider the darkest of dark growing up as a Pharisee, which is to take the gospel to the non-Jewish people, which are the Gentiles. In many ways, the apostle Paul patterns his life right after the, the life of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say this, and, he, and then he 
I think one of the reasons why Paul is so profoundly impacted by Christ is that of all the people in the world that you would think God would not have any time of day for, it would be a person that is actively going out of his way to destroy the church. And yet this is the very person whom Christ reveals himself to. And I think this impacts Paul. Because he's like, who was I? Who was I that Christ, the risen Savior, would show himself to me in such a way that it profoundly changes the entire course of Paul's life? And he even says this. He goes on to say, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart at birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Gentiles are the non-Jews. Most of us are Gentiles, for example. I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I immediately went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So he's kind of going back. Now he says he goes to Syria and Cilicia, but then he backs up and he's talking about that first trip to Jerusalem, the churches in Judea. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it, and we're going to compare it to what we see in the book of Acts. Because one of the things that the Bible provides for us, like we went, when we went to the letter of 1 John, is it often kind of, you can sort of interpret the Bible with the Bible, or you can use the Bible to get further information. And we're going to be focusing on this last phrase here, they praised God because of me. Because this is a phrase where Paul is sort of summing up this first chapter of his Christian walk the first act of his Christian walk. And he ends it by saying, and they praised God because of me. How many of you have ever said, you know what? Folks have praised God because of me. Has it, have, you, have any of you ever said that? Now, I don't doubt that there are many of you here that if you ask the people around you, would they say that they praise God because of your life? that they would say so. But most people who have the character of Christ wouldn't go around saying, you know what? People praise God because of me. It sounds very what? Arrogant, right? What's interesting in this passage, like I said, we have in the story of Acts, we find in the book of Acts that the way Paul describes his life uh, in the letter of Galatians is really giving a, a, a point of view that is looking back over this incident in his life over these years in his life and we know that he's writing the letters to the Galatians probably about 20 years after he's become a believer because he says so he says that 14 years after uh, he had gone to the first time in to Jerusalem he goes back and he says that in the letter to the Galatians so we know that he's writing this from at least 
20 years after he becomes a believer. And as he does so, he expresses what has happened to him only in, he kind of hits only the high points of it, and he expresses it in very positive terms. But what's interesting is that if you read the book of Acts, we find that there's, this story is a much more involved story. And what I find personally interesting and kind of fascinating is that we know that the book of Acts was written by this guy named Luke. And we know that Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He travels with Paul. In fact, in the book of Acts in chapter 16, there's this famous verse that has this shift where Luke is talking about everybody in third person. They did this. They did that. He starts including himself. We did this. We did that. So we know that he's with him. And so I think it's very likely that most of the biographical material in the book of Acts about Paul comes from Paul. He told Luke his own story, and Luke's writing it down. And then we have also the letters of Paul. And it's interesting to see how these things go together. Because let's look at how Paul, when he talks about, I received this revelation directly from Christ, and he just kind of, he's very kind of, everything goes very straightforward, you know. Uh, you know, I was set apart from, from birth to be called to do this. He got revealed his son to me to preach among the Gentiles. He just kind of goes, dot, 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 dot. Everything's nice and smooth. But was it? Let's look in the book of Acts. And we're going to compare these two. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul. And actually, he's called Saul in, uh, in these passages. Paul and Saul are the same guy. Uh, Paul, Paulus is kind of the, the Roman way of saying Saul. And also, there's some other reasons. We'll get into some other time about why that name changes. But it isn't Jesus that changes it. It's not like Peter's name is changed by Christ. That's not what happens here. He just starts going by the name Paul after a while. So it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It's very vivid, right? He's basically saying just as easily as Paul breathes, he's also threatening. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any that belonged to the way, and that's what Christianity was originally called, the way, whether men or women, he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul is a, he is a self-starter. He is a very proactive guy. He's breathing threats against the church. He goes to the high priest. He gets letters giving him authority so that he could go to not just a different city, but a different country to root out Christianity within the Jewish community. And somehow he plans to chain them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. I'm not quite sure how he plans to pull that off, but he has ambitious plans. And then it says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul were speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Paul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So we learn from this passage that when the Apostle Paul in Galatians says, you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to me, that there was some serious trauma in the drama of Christ's revelation to him. 
It wasn't as simple as some warm, fuzzy feeling of understanding God's love. He gets blinded by the light, literally, gets knocked to the ground. He's in a place, he goes from being the, the scary and dangerous Saul, who's coming to Damascus with authority and with power to persecute, to being led in like a blind beggar into the city. He is humbled by this. And there's no coincidence that for three days, he is blind and in the dark. And then Paul goes on. I mean, God then has a man come to heal Paul. But this guy doesn't go with confidence. In fact, he's a little nervous about being sent to heal Paul. And his name is Ananias, which is a name, if, you, if you've been with our Bible study in the book of Acts, and we talked about this, there's an Ananias in chapter 5 who is a person that lies about the money that he uh, sold a field for and, and claimed to give it to the church, and, uh, and this Ananias. And we know that they're not the same guy because the guy in chapter 5 is dead. So this is a different Ananias. It says this, In Damascus there is a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And so, again, looking back the way that Paul describes this, he, he doesn't talk about this in his, in his description in, in, Galatians, in Galatians. He just kind of moves over this part. But it gets to this important part. Paul does talk about his calling, and he says that his calling was to the Gentiles. Look what he says. He says, but when God who sent me apart from birth and called me by grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul tells us that he eventually he comes to this place where he is given the calling of God to preach among the Gentiles. But in the book of Acts, we learn that, again, this did not come easily. This was not given to Paul in such a manner that you might think, oh, yay, I've heard a calling from God. There's more trauma to it than that. It says this, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Whew, that sounds a little ominous, doesn't it? But we know that Paul embraces that idea of suffering. So he hears this and he embraces it. He doesn't shy away from it. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. I think it's funny. Ananias wants to make sure Paul knows what's going on. You know, you were knocked down. You're blinded. Just make sure you know who that was. That was Jesus. Has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. 
So we see here that this calling to the Gentiles, where Paul just talks about it in, in, the, in the Galatians, as though it's just kind of this linear thing that just comes along quite easily. We find this also did not come without its trauma around it. It came with the involvement of Ananias. It came with the healing of his eyes. And some people think that Paul's eyesight was permanently damaged a little bit from this because there's a passage in, the, in Acts where he doesn't recognize that the person he's talking to is a high priest and he gets slapped because of it. And some of the early, early mosaics of the Apostle Paul show him as cross-eyed because that was one of the, uh, the traditions around Paul. But we learn that this calling to the Gentiles comes with this, also this kind of undercurrent that says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. But the other thing that Paul doesn't, that's not in the book of Acts, which is interesting that Paul mentions in Galatia, is that Paul says, I went into Arabia, and then I came back to Damascus. And we don't know what happens in Arabia. And he's, in the Galatians, he says, immediately I went to Arabia, then I returned to Damascus. Acts says, at once he begins to preach in the synagogues. And so we don't really know what happens in Arabia. Some people, there's like tradition around it that Jesus personally tutored Paul in Arabia. But I think if Jesus showed up as resurrected Jesus and was sitting on a rock next to Paul and personally tutoring him, he would have said that. But I think he has basically a desert experience. Because remember, he's patterned his life after Christ. I wouldn't be surprised if what he did is he went into the desert and did 40 days of prayer and fasting, just like Jesus did before his ministry began. And during that time, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit now, he kind of reconsiders everything he believes, everything he thought he knew, everything that the Old Testament, he was an expert in the Old Testament, and he's beginning to reform things. Because when Paul comes back to Damascus, he is clearly the theologian among the group. He is the one that goes and begins to say, he begins to speak to the Jews, which is interesting because even though he is called to the place of being the disciple to the Gentiles, that's not where he immediately goes. It says this, at once, this is back in Acts now, at once he began to preach in the synagogues about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take us prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now we need to make it clear, Paul never rejects the fact that he's a Jew himself. He never rejects his Judaism. So don't read this as anti-Semitic in any way. He still considers himself Jewish. He never stops going to the synagogues. Even after he gets angry enough with the people and says, I'm never going to the synagogues again. In the very next chapter, he goes to another town. He goes to the synagogues. He never gives up on trying to reach his own people. But it says that after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. So let's get back now to the idea that our life is a story. When you compare... Acts chapter 9, verse 26, and Galatians chapter 1, particularly verse 24, what do you make of this? 
9.26 says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. And yet he says in verses 22 through 24, I was personally in Galatians. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They had only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. What do we make of this? Is this a contradiction? Is this one of these places that people go, you see, the Bible's full of contradictions. How can you trust it as the true word of God when it's full of contradictions? What do we make of it? What do we make of it when we consider the fact that Paul himself was the source probably of both these stories? We know he's the source of the Galatian letter, and he's likely the source of the biographical information that he gives to Luke. What do we make of this? Is it a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. But it is a complication. Because you know what? Life is complicated. Something that has been maybe for you a very painful and difficult thing in your life might be the very thing that you look back upon when years have passed and said, that was the best thing that happened to me. How many of you have heard that? How many of you experienced that? That you went through something that was very painful very difficult to get through. Maybe you at times even wondered if you were going to make it through. You wanted to just curl up into a little dark ball and die. And yet, by keeping your eyes on Christ and trusting God, even when it felt like there's nothing here to trust, as years passed by, you were able to look at that time and see that this very difficult and painful time so radically transformed either the direction of your life or how you view your life in such a way that you look back on that painful time and say, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard stories of people who went through job losses or career changes, who went through health issues, who went through difficult marital issues or issues with their children, issues which broke their hearts when they're in the middle of it, and they cried out to God saying, why is this happening to me? Where are you, Lord? Times when their faith began to shake and doubt because they kept going and relying upon God and they didn't see any movement. But later, years passed by. They looked back on it and they would tell the story and they would say, you know what? It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And they don't say that with a whole lot of, you know, happiness, but they say it with the reality that I had to go through this valley in order for God to change who I was, changed the way I was living my life, changed the direction my life was going, and they can look back on it and they can rejoice. How often do we find ourselves as Christians? Because sometimes people think being a Christian means you're not going to have any difficult things in life, and that's just not true. You're going to have the same difficulties in life as anyone else. And we're going to all go through the process of life, and the process of life is painful at times. But we can allow life to cause us just to go into a place of bitterness and resentment. We can go into a place where we do give up on our faith. Or we can trust Christ through it to see us through it to the other side. And on that other side, trust that he's going to make something beautiful of it. This is what happened to Paul. When he goes to Damascus, he wasn't expecting the life turn that his, that his life takes. He had chosen to reject Christ. 
And his vision for his life was to destroy the church. That's what he wanted his life to be about. He wanted his legacy to be a legacy of the faith of his fathers, the faith to his ancestors, not to God. And when he gets there and has his life turned around, this person who was a Pharisee, who saw the people who were the non-Jews as unclean, not even, you can't even be in the presence of them and eat with them. You're certainly not supposed to even lay your hand on them and touch them. He becomes the one that takes the good news of salvation to these very people. He was not expecting this. But instead of pouting and feeling that his life was unfair and that God was mean, Paul is deeply and profoundly grateful and humble that one such as himself would garner the attention of Jesus Christ and be pulled from that dark place of hate into the light of Christ. And when you think about it, the fact that the disciples in Jerusalem were still afraid of Paul three years after he had been active in the Christian community in Damascus tells you how bad he was. Three years, they're still saying, not so sure about this guy. But when you continue to read the book of Acts, in fact, it still doesn't go easy. The disciples do eventually embrace Paul. But then Paul goes to the temple in Jerusalem and does the same thing. He begins to preach Christ, and he preaches Christ with such vigor and with such fire that the heat starts to get turned up on the church again in in Jerusalem. And you know what the disciples say? Ah, Paul, you need to go. And instead of sending him back to Damascus, they have him go to Tarsus, which is his hometown. And Paul sits there. And we don't know how long he sits there, but he sits there For quite some time, the disciples, who do believe he's a disciple, say, you're too hot to handle. You need to go to Tarsus. He's sitting in Tarsus, which is kind of, we don't know. There's nothing going on there. We we know there's a church in Damascus. We know there's a church in Jerusalem. Until a guy named Barnabas shows up and picks up Paul. He goes to Tarsus, picks Paul up, and takes him to Antioch. And it's in Antioch that Paul becomes Paul. It's in Antioch that he becomes a leader of that church, and it's in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are sent on the first missionary journey to take the gospel, and he continues to do this for the rest of his life. And he becomes one of the most influential people in history. We're all going to go through some complicated and difficult and disappointing times in our life. That's just part of being human. But what's important as Christians is how do we deal with that? How do we regard that? Do we let it tear us down? Because it's easy to, when you're in the midst of it, to feel torn down. And sometimes you really can't do anything about it. It's such a difficult and horrible thing going on in your life that no matter how hard you try and keep, you know, a positive attitude about it, it gets you down. But do you stay down? Do you stay in that pit? Do you stay in that place of darkness? Do you become bitter? Do you become resentful? Because it's in difficult times that our faith is really exposed. Are we believing in an idea? But as soon as something runs into that idea that becomes difficult, we crumble. Or do we believe in a person? Do we believe in a person that we trust is there for us, even through the difficult time, that will get us through, rebuild our shattered life or our disappointed life or our grief-stricken life, rebuild it, 
into such a thing that we can look back on the tragedies or the heartbreaks or the disappointments of our life and say, you know what? It was actually good for me. It wasn't easy. I might not choose to go through that again, but it was good because it transformed me into a person more closely into the image of God that I should be, like I should be. Because the problem with hanging on to an idea, and if you ever study philosophy and philosophers, most philosophers go nuts at some point in their life. Nietzsche went nuts. Uh, Nietzsche, yeah. He went crazy. Most of them do. Immanuel Kant kind of loses his mind. Because they're hanging, what are we doing up here? They're, they're hanging on to an idea. They're hanging on to an idea. Ideas don't save. They hang on to an idea of their philosophy, and when their philosophy runs into reality, their lives crumble. And they have a history. You just read the history of philosophers. They almost all kind of lose their marbles at the end because their philosophy cannot, their ideas cannot stand up to reality. But if we put our trust in a person, the living Savior, the risen Jesus Christ, which is more than an idea, and it's more than just a nice person. Because you know what? Jesus also lived a kind of complicated life. His brothers thought he was just full of himself. The people around him, who is this guy? Isn't this the son of Joseph the carpenter? His own fellow Jews hated him. He walks around and, and does wonderful things, but then his, one of his closest friends betrays him. He ends up going through a terrible torture and death. It's a complicated life. But he rose again. And in that, there's victory over sin and death, and we praise the name of Jesus because of that. Paul went through a complicated life. But at the end, as he looked back on it, when he's writing to the Galatians, he could say, yeah, people praise the Lord because of me. It took him a while. It took him a while to, to warm up to the idea. It took him a while to, to really believe he was genuine. But yeah, they praise the Lord because of him. In your complicated life, don't become discouraged. Keep your eyes on who the person is that you're trusting here, Christ. And allow that faith in the risen Christ to be the thing that writes the final chapter of your life when your story is told about the way you lived, what you believed, and the impact you had on people's lives for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the lives that are in the Bible. We thank you. The Bible really is full of people's lives. The stories in the Old Testament, the lives, you know, we think of the lives of David and Noah and Moses and the prophets. Of course, in the Gospels, the lives of, life of Jesus Christ, the life of the many characters around him, not just the apostles and the disciples, but like the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the, at the well in Samaria or, you know, the people brought before Jesus, the blind Bartimaeus, you know, these characters that are in there, Zacchaeus, who are lives that we know a little bit of their story. And how their stories, their complicated lives, very often lives where they weren't in a place of happiness and joy. You know, Zacchaeus is one of them. 
Everybody, actually, that talks to Jesus doesn't really come to you in a good place. But you put them into a good place. And so, Father, we pray that for ourselves as well. Lord, we're living these lives. And it's going to be a part of history before we even know it. It's going to be passing by us so quickly. And may we live in such a way that you are glorified by our life story. Not that we are talked about well or that we are lifted up or we are all this, but that you are glorified. And Lord, I pray for those who are right now in the midst of these complicated times of life, in the midst of grief, in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of these times where we wonder, are we alone in this? We pray for them that you would give them the faith to turn their eyes to you and trust that you will walk them through it and that they can look back on it as the Apostle Paul did and say, they praised God because of me. They praised God because of how they saw my life transformed. And that you would continue to remind us that being a Christian doesn't mean everything goes easy. In fact, the Apostle Paul is the exact proof of that, how much he suffered. It's not easy but it's good. It's worthwhile. It is a life of meaning and significance. And even if that meaning and significance is only known to a relative few people, that's not the point. The point is it's known to you, and we thank you for that. God, help us to live as salt and light in this world, in a world that's just spinning right now with uncertainty and fear and speculation and turmoil and very, very strong emotions, not just because of the whole Israel-Hamas thing, but, you know, Ukraine-Russia thing and politics and all the crazy stuff going on in the world around us. God, that we would be salt and light, that we can ride these turbulent times with people that don't know you and give them assurance that, yeah, this world itself might even come to an end at some point, but if our hope is found in you, then we are children of eternity. So may we take upon ourselves and embrace the story that you've made our lives to be. Some people, if it comes out of a place of shame, may they embrace it knowing that you gave us dignity. If it comes out of a place of brokenness, may they embrace that and proclaim that you gave them wholeness. If it comes out of a place of, of loss, may they embrace that and give testimony that you have given more than we could ever imagine or hope for. May our lives be a testimony to you as we seek to, like the Apostle Paul, be light in the darkness, taking the gospel of truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.